What do you reckon most hinders the gospel in Gympie or in Australia? What makes it hard for people to hear the gospel and follow Jesus? Now, maybe this is a bit extreme, but the recent history of Christianity in China is sad and encouraging. Before the Cultural Revolution, which started in the mid-1960s, before the Cultural Revolution, it's estimated there were around 4 million Christians in China, mainly Catholic and a minority of Protestants. The Cultural Revolution was a brutal time in China's history, brutal for all religious believers and, of course, Christians, but not only brutal to religion, academics, Artists were hounded and persecuted during this period of time. After about a decade, uh, historians believe there were zero buildings set aside for church use in China. And of course, there was no option for them to hire a public hall like we use here or even anything private. (laughs) And the number of believers, well, it's, it's impossible to know, but it would have been incredibly small. What believers there were met in secret churches, hiding from authorities, hiding from everyone. Uh, starting in the early 1980s, some restrictions were relaxed in China. In parts of China, there was some relief for Christians, some ability to meet and talk about Jesus publicly. But one thing was sure, there was to be no outside influence, no help or support from Christians around the world, and definitely no gospel workers, no missionaries could enter China. And although there was an increasing acceptance of being Christian, it was hardly a time of freedom. 1989 was the Tiananmen Square massacre. For decades... Chinese Christians struggled and suffered official persecution with no support or help from their brothers and sisters around the world. But by the early 2000s, estimates are that there are around 50 million believers. In four decades, the number of people calling themselves Christian had increased more than tenfold. Uh, If you have a look at that graph on the screen, the top line is the membership of the Chinese Communist Party starting in 1950 going through to about 2010. The bottom line is an estimate of the number of believers. And the amazing fact is the steepness of that line since 1980. In the 1980s, what looked to the world as a desperate situation, a situation that would hinder the work of the gospel... A situation even God couldn't work in. Unknown to the outside world, God was working. What looked like failure and feebleness to us, maybe that's not how God works. So today we're finishing our series in Acts. We started this series last year, seeing how the... the (coughs) seeing how the gospel spread and grew, starting in Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, and now we get to the final chapters of Acts, the final chapter of Acts, the gospel is making it to the ends of the earth. Uh, This is what Jesus commanded and promised 
in Acts 1.8. Acts tells the story of what Jesus continues to do. After his death, resurrection and ascension, pouring out his spirit, empowering his people for mission. And so here we are, the final moments in Luke's historical record of what the risen Lord Jesus continued to do in and through the early Christian movement. And this is a great moment. As today, after shipwreck and snake bites, uh, the Apostle Paul, the messenger of the risen and ascended Lord, as Paul arrives in Rome. So let's listen to this monumentous event. So Acts 28, verse 11. So we're starting in verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Putioli. Uh, There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. This is a great moment. The Lord's Apostle coming to the centre of worldly power, entering Rome, the symbol of Gentile power. And maybe, in Paul's mind, Rome is also a gateway to the rest of the world. Uh, Years earlier, when Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, he mentioned his plan to, to stop over in Rome before heading to Spain, arguably the end of the known earth. And so Paul is ushered into Rome by a group of believers who've come out to welcome him. It's like how an ancient king would be welcomed home victorious after a battle brought in procession. Kind of like how you go to the airport to cheer the team as they come home. They've just won the grand final. You've got to go out to the airport to meet them. It looks like Paul has come to Rome in victory, ushered in with with crowds cheering. Except he doesn't go to the palace. But a prison. He comes in chains. Verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Yes, Paul lives in a house, not a dungeon, but it's house arrest. Now this scene is full of irony, weakness and strength. I think we find this This part of the Bible, very hard to believe. Not the fact that it happened, but deep down, we don't want this to be true. Last week, Mitch mentioned prosperity theology. This is ours. This is our prosperity doctrine to not believe what this part of the Bible says. We think Jesus is king. We should be treated by the world as princes and princesses. Christians, churches should have the respect of the world We should have power, a seat at the table. We should go to Rome and go straight to Caesar's palace and he should welcome us with open arms. But the pattern of the Bible is God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
And this doesn't mean that he, he picks the weak one and then makes us measurably and visibly strong in this age. No, that's not the pattern of Jesus' life, is it? It's not the pattern of Paul's life. No, it's as weak and frail people. That is when God's strength is revealed. God's strength is not like the world's strength. It is shown in our weakness. And so in both victory and humiliation, Paul comes into Rome as both ambassador and prisoner. In many ways in Rome, Paul follows the same pattern, his same pattern of ministry as he has everywhere. In all his missionary journeys, he starts by, gets to a town, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue, he goes to where the Jewish people gather to hear God's word and pray. Except this time, Paul can't go to the synagogue, he's in chains, he can't go there to preach Christ. So he gets the leaders of the Jewish community to come to him. It seems Paul has two goals in this meeting. One is legal and practical. He he wants to find out what kind of opposition he faces, what kind of accusations, what kind of legal defence is he going to have to mount. And secondly, and this is probably actually more important in Paul's mind, knowing Paul's heart, secondly, his goal is to proclaim Christ to the people of God who don't yet know their Messiah. Verse 17. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders... When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you, but we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. It's strange the Jewish leaders aren't prepared for Paul, knowing how intent the Jews of Jerusalem were even conspiring to murder Paul. Surely they're planning on pressing charges and and stating their case. Most likely Paul has beat the mail. In some ways, helped along by the storm, he's beaten express post. But once again, here he is in front of the leaders He tells his side of the story. He's innocent. He's done nothing deserving of death. If he's guilty of anything, it's of believing God, believing in the hope of Israel, the the coming of the Messiah and the pouring out of the Spirit. It's also a bit surprising, so it's surprising they haven't heard anything about Paul. It's also surprising how they feign ignorance about the followers of Jesus. They don't really, they say, well, we don't really get what you Christians are on about. Because it's surprising because there's been Christian churches in Rome for years, probably decades. Jews and Gentiles have been worshipping Jesus in Rome. Surely the Jewish community, the Jewish leaders have done some investigation. Surely they know what Christians are on about. Maybe what's going on is, is they know Paul's pedigree. 
He was trained by the best of the best of the Pharisees. And so they think, we actually want to hear from Paul. We want to hear from this guy, why on earth he would be worshipping the Lord Jesus, believing that he has fulfilled the hope of Israel. They want to hear it from Paul. And so a little while later, that's what happens. A larger group of Jews come to hear uh, what Paul has to say. Verse 23, they, they, that's the Jewish religious leaders, arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was saying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. It's the same message, the same gospel message Paul has been preaching all along from the Old Testament, proving that the Messiah must suffer and die and then rise again, showing how, well, God's kings were always weak and humble, at least the godly ones were, and God's strength is shown in in their suffering and weakness, and then proving Jesus is God's king, that as promised, as predicted, he has died and risen again, that Jesus is the only way of salvation and now Jesus is God's risen and ruling Messiah who has poured out his spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. And they spent all day on this topic. I take it if Paul was going all day, this wasn't a lecture, but back and forth, question and answer. And by the end of the day, verse 24, some were convinced by what he had said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, this is Paul speaking now, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. How do you feel about what Paul just said to that uh, group of people who come to listen? I, I feel a bit uncomfortable with what he's saying. It's a bit, a bit rude, isn't it? A bit confronting. We run courses like Christianity Explored. It's eight weeks for people meeting Jesus in Mark's gospel. Most people, you ask them how they became a Christian, it's a journey of months, if not years. And here's Paul one day, you know, only a few hours really, morning till night, you know, 10 hours, 14 hours, something like that. For one day he's been telling them about Jesus and, and as a whole, they don't come to repentance and faith. And he says, you guys are deaf. You guys have got hard hearts and deaf ears. He's not very patient, is he? I wonder if, how you'd feel. Well, I don't think any of us would get impatient. Someone we've been talking to Jesus, talking to about Jesus for a couple of hours and then go, right, well, that's it then. A difference, of course, is Paul is speaking to convinced Jews, they already claim to worship the one true living God, to believe all that was spoken by the prophets and in the law and in the writings. It shouldn't be too hard for them to believe Jesus is the Christ. Maybe 
Also, Paul knows his time is short. His trial might happen at any day. And plenty of innocent people have lost their head in Roman trials. So maybe he thinks, look, I don't have time to do eight weeks with you guys. This is it. Also, I think we need to understand the quote from Isaiah. It does sound pretty harsh, doesn't it? It sounds very harsh. And and there are a few in the crowd who are at least coming around. Why quote something? Paul, what are you doing? Why, why quote something that sounds harsh and judgmental and, and like a final underline, full stop, this is it? Well, we need to understand the Isaiah quote itself. It's actually not harsh. Even when Isaiah said those words, it was with a broken heart. The very next sentence he says, the very next words Isaiah says after he says these words from God is, he cries out, how long? God have mercy. Don't make this go on for too long. And we know from Romans 9, when Paul speaks of those of his own nation, he speaks of their rejection of Jesus with tears. And so although... As he quotes Isaiah, those words have an element of judgment. It's also a a cry of clarity and an urgent warning. This is not said with judgmental glee, but with tears. In Isaiah's day, he was calling Judah to repentance. Please repent, otherwise Babylon will come. On Paul's lips, calling his Jewish audience to receive Christ, otherwise God's judgment will come, not with judgmental glee, but with tears. But they have hard hearts. And in the Isaiah quote, there are two reasons people won't hear. Verse 25, it's the judgment of God. God's judgment is you You will hear, your ears will receive the sound waves, your brains will comprehend the words, but you will not understand. In God's judgment, you will not receive forgiveness in Christ. But verse 26, it's also their own hard hearts. They have closed their own eyes. They have covered their own ears. For these reasons... They will not turn and receive God's healing, his forgiveness of sins, his healing their spiritually sick hearts. But although Paul's heart is broken, that his Jewish audience will not hear, and as a whole they have not come to Christ, he has much more confidence about non-Jews, about Gentiles. Why, Why is this? Is he just winding his audience up? There is an ancient Jewish prayer where you thank God in the morning that you were not born a Gentile. Maybe he's just provoking the crowd. He's already said some harsh words from Isaiah. He just goes, well, here, here, I'll just stick in the last bit. No, I, I think he's not provoking the crowd. There's more than this going on. Paul is rightly optimistic for the people of the world to respond to the gospel. He knows that God will save people all over the world. He knows people. he will save people even in Gympie because it's the promise of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's a messianic promise that in the Messiah, God will save people of all nations, all ethnicities. It's up on the screen. So just a few chapters after that note of judgment, 
God says, in that day, the root of Jesse, he's talking about the Messiah, about Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples, plural, the nations, plural, will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So it's not just that Paul has seen Gentiles come to Jesus because he had seen that. But the same prophet who spoke of hard hearts and closed ears also speaks the promise of peoples and nations coming to the Messiah. Paul is confident that Gentiles will hear because God has promised. And this is why Paul's heart isn't hardened by their hard hearts. It's so easy, isn't it? So easy for us when we see people ignore Jesus. Maybe our own family, our own children. When we see them turn away from the God they've been raised to know. Or or people who used to be part of, of our church but have fallen out of the habit of gathering with God's people and and now have no evidence of love for God or trust in Jesus, because how is that going to be sustained without what God promises? We'll sustain it, the people of God gathering together. It's so easy for our hearts to get calloused to God's mission, to start thinking, well, what's the point? The gospel faces impossible odds. Why bother telling people about Jesus? The culture is against us. Satan is against us. Let's just give up. But that's not how Paul responds, is it? Surrounded by a room of hard hearts and closed eyes, Paul's heart is not hardened because he knows God. He knows God's promise. He knows that when we are weak and it feels that the hindrances are high, then we are strong. And so the final words, the final words of Acts, of Luke's historical record of what Jesus continues to do is that the gospel was proclaimed in chains yet boldly and without hindrance. Verse 30, for two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I've got no doubt that both Jew and Gentile came to Paul. Some of those who began to be persuaded on that that day, they kept coming back. And God opened their ears and softened their hearts. And and Gentiles too, Jew and Gentile, coming to Paul, and he proclaims Christ boldly without hindrance. And he does that whilst being chained to a Roman soldier. And so the book of Acts finishes. Do you feel it's kind of an unsatisfying way to finish the book of Acts? There's so many unfinished stories. Did Paul ever stand trial before Caesar? Was he found innocent or guilty? Was he freed or did he spend his final days in chains? Did the gospel keep on going or was this the end? Were Christians able to witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth?
I reckon Luke deliberately leaves us hanging because we are still living out the history of Acts. We keep coming back, I keep alluding to, but let's look at Acts 1.1, the very first words he writes in this. In my former book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, in the former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began is an important word. Jesus didn't stop teaching and doing once he died and rose and ascended to heaven. Jesus' mission didn't stop. And it didn't stop with Paul in Rome. And it didn't stop with the death of the last of the apostles. The mission of Jesus, the mission of the triune God through the power of the Holy Spirit continues. And that's why the last words that Luke writes, the last words, the last bit of his quill or whatever he's writing with, he puts on the parchment, is boldly and without hindrance. Because no matter how things look like on the outside, this is the truth. God's word is true. Jesus is risen and reigning. His spirit is empowering and enabling his people in churches throughout the world. There is no hindrance. We can be bold. What do you think we need? What do we, Christians in Gympie, Christians in Australia, what do we need? What's the things we need to change so that for for God's kingdom to be proclaimed boldly? What do we need for it to grow without hindrance? I think many of us have an answer for this question. We think if only we had more support, if the media was more friendly to Christians, both news media but also movies and TV shows, if university lecturers were more positive about faith in Jesus, if only there were guaranteed legal and political freedom of religion, if only Facebook and Twitter's algorithm was tweaked, so that instead of anger and chaos, it was the gospel that got pushed to the top, that's what we need. If only we had these things, then we could be bold and unhindered. I think the reason we, we think this is because that's often the message we hear either intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know, there are voices that want to tell you, both Christian and non-Christian voices, that want to tell us, Christians, you are hindered. The kingdom of God has no chance. Voices that make us feel helpless, hopeless, anxious and fearful. But that's not the voice of God. That's not the message of the Bible. And the Bible says when we are weak, we are strong. The way of the cross is the way of glory. Yes, there is hostility in our culture to the things of God, just as there was plenty of hostility to Paul, yet by the Spirit, bold and unhindered. I love the title of a course, a training course, a bloke called Stephen McAlpine has put together. I mentioned him a fair bit a few years ago when we were going through 1 Peter. He's written a great book. Being the bad guys, it's a a practical reflection on 1 Peter in our current cultural climate. Uh, He's gone on and he's written a, a training course. The title of it is, Never More Hostile, Never More Open. Uh, yes, parts of our culture are arguably, arguably more hostile to the gospel than previously in our lifetimes. But God continues to be at work. 
Jesus is still king. The spirit still empowers. There is great openness to the gospel in Australia today. The story of the gospel in China is a great recent encouragement. To the outside world, it looked hopeless. Yet, like Paul says later in his life, the gospel is not chained. And even if that graph in China had a different shape, as it has had in different times in the world, you know, if we were telling this story during the Cultural Revolution, the graph would be going like this, wouldn't it? But even if the graph had a different shape, it wouldn't change the truth. And it wouldn't stop the Spirit of God giving us boldness. So let's pray. Let's pray God does in our hearts what he did in Paul's, encouraging us, giving us confidence in the truth of Jesus, confidence in his saving plans, that we might speak of Jesus boldly and without hindrance and then continue to see God's kingdom grow as people are saved. Let's pray. Father God, we confess we are so often frightened and fretful. We're often timid and discouraged. Please open our eyes and strengthen our hearts. Help us know that you are the God who saves, that your heart is for the lost, that your mission is salvation and your kingdom will prevail. Give us courage and confidence to speak of the kingdom of God, of salvation in Christ with boldness. Help us know that with the Spirit empowering us, Jesus' kingdom is not hindered. And in your mercy, this is what we pray, this is what we beg. May we see this. May we see tens of thousands of people in our region coming to Christ and churches awake and emboldened to proclaim Christ. We pray that people might be saved in our our region, in our nation, as they hear the good news and trust in Jesus. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.